0: The Spin-off Podcast Network.
1: We believe where you live shouldn't decide your destiny and that any place can be a place of learning. So much of modern life has a handy home delivery option, why not your education? Maybe you'll start your degree in the same space you share with your farno or from that corner of the spare room that catches the most sun. Start your new what at the place where we are can be anywhere, online or on campus. Massey, New Zealand's leading online university. Apply now at massey.ac.nz Ki te kahore he te iwi. Without foresight or vision, the people will be lost. Kia ora koutou, I'm Stacey Morrison. No mai, Haide Mai, welcome to Conversations That Count, Makoriro Faitake, a thought-provoking series brought to you by Massey University and the spin-off. On today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Libby Liggins and Keda Sherwood O'Regan for a all about climate change and its impacts on our oceans. As an island nation, those impacts, things like rising sea levels, coastal erosion, and depleting fish stocks, are ones which will affect us in very tangible and immediate ways. On this episode, we'll discuss the broader problem of climate change, how that's affecting our sea, and how those effects cascade. We'll also look at what we can do to mitigate those effects going forward, and where we're going to need help. Dr Liggins is a senior lecturer in marine ecology at Massey University, whose research focuses largely on the generation and changing nature of biogeographic, ecological, and demographic patterns in the ocean. Kira is an interdisciplinary storyteller and change maker working at the intersections of indigenous and disability rights, water and climate change, and has worked with the United Nations to ensure that indigenous voices and narratives are centered in our conversations about and responses to climate change. Thank you so much for joining us with this beautiful and important kaupapa. Libby, could you set the scene a bit for us? In terms of impact on our oceans, what does that look like?
2: Yeah, so I think everyone knows about climate change. It's a really hard issue to really understand. It's not very tangible. And one of the reasons for that is that our oceans have actually been buffering us from the full brunt of Mm. climate change. So our oceans have absorbed around 90% of the excess heat energy that's been produced by our activities over the last half century. And we also know that it's been absorbing a lot of the excess carbon dioxide we've been emitting. And as a consequence... Some of the most dire, I guess, impacts of climate change are happening in our oceans. But unfortunately, it's away from our human eye. We are terrestrial beings. We don't often see what's going on in the oceans. But what we do know is that our oceans become more acidified because of climate change. And we also are seeing that we're getting greater heating of our oceans. And that manifests in different ways. It can be localised warming. It can be changing ocean
1: currents. So Libby, what do we know from your perspective as a scientist about those local impacts?
2: From my perspective and based on what I've read in environmental reporting series from our government through climate change, fisheries um, and marine science, we don't know a lot. So there is a very widely acknowledged data gap about what those local impacts are. And I'll focus on biodiversity impacts because I feel like that is the conduit between how humans interact with what we're seeing and changes for the physical ocean environment. So for that reason, my own research is really trying to address those gaps. And there's two ways in which I do that. The first is in using the genetics of the organism. So I take samples from individuals or populations and use their genes to trace back their papa. So where did they come from? Um, how long have they been here? Is their population growing, declining? The other way in which my research is trying to address that knowledge gap is to harness that knowledge that local individuals have. You know, it'll be drawing from their own experience of the ocean, um, what species they've seen or haven't seen in a, a certain location, and that we've used that to help inform which species are turning up in new places for the first time, which species are increasing in abundance, and where in New Zealand those things are happening. And that's really important because it helps us to understand what those local impacts might be. So what species do we expect in someone's new backyard? What species do we expect to be disappearing from those places? And so where should we be focusing our monitoring efforts to
1: look at those changes? So lay people can probably understand, Okay, so the ocean's warmer, but those are the impacts that it has in terms of biodiversity and what we're seeing there. You made an interesting point about us being land-dwelling and do we see the ocean, but we are tangata whenua and tangata moana as well, aren't we, Kira? So what's your perception of where indigenous viewpoint helps us actually interact with the ocean in a different way.
0: Oh, Tina kōrua. Thanks so much for having me here. Lovely to be in Kōrero uh, with you both. Yeah I think it's really interesting uh, what Libby's raised already because obviously I think in a lot of media and a lot of the news and certainly in a lot of the international discussions uh, we see this really huge emphasis on climate change impacts that are happening on the land but obviously as Māori we have that really important relationship with the Moana as well and I think what's also been really interesting for me is I've had the real privilege of working in some international spaces with the International Indigenous Peoples Forum on Climate Change So they work within the uh, United Nations um, Framework Convention on Climate Change sort of area. And so basically that's your collection of all the Indigenous people around the world who are coming to these climate negotiations every year And um, before the negotiations start, we always have this uh, amazing hui with people from all around, you know, iwi takitake from all around the world. And you get to hear these stories of what people are experiencing in their regions. And I found it really interesting hearing about the coastal impacts, the uh, impacts in terms of our oceans and fisheries in particular. So, you know, hearing uh, that elders sharing, well, when I was a kid, you know, we were fishing in this particular area and this was a really significant site for, you know, our tupuna, but nowadays, you know, that particular fishery has either dwindled or it's moved or maybe there's new species that are there instead and maybe competing out against the uh, other species that those communities might have relied on. So I think that the ocean impacts, you know, as Libby's mentioned, you can't necessarily see them very obviously and and they're maybe not as emphasised in a lot of the conversation about climate change but I think when we go and you know talk to our whānau and say oh well you know where are you fishing these days you know there is a lot of that knowledge that actually exists within our communities but we just don't necessarily connect that to climate change or see that as you know climate expertise because we have this very particular idea of what climate change is and who mm. gets to be an expert
2: on that. Yeah I'm really excited by what Keda is saying because I wholeheartedly agree. I think that If you look at all the national reporting series for our environment and oceans and fisheries in New Zealand, there is what we call a data shortage around what are those biodiversity impacts, what are those impacts on local communities and the value that we draw from the WANA? I don't believe that. I don't believe that we don't know about these things. I think that there is a whole lot of untapped knowledge um, and ways of knowing things that we haven't yet connected with um, as scientists and as, I guess, a government My own research, I've tried to tap into what I would call local knowledge, so um, enabling citizen scientists and trying to understand and draw from their own expertise in the marine environment that I don't have as a trained scientist. I know how to steward the information they give me, but I don't necessarily hold that knowledge myself. So I've been relying a lot on local fishermen, natural historians, people who've spent their lifetimes in the oceans, and through that we've been able to really describe some of the first range extensions of species within New Zealand. It's been really powerful, but that knowledge that I've been drawing from there has been predominantly what people have seen within a lifetime. And what Kira is talking about is transgenerational knowledge. And we're lucky in New Zealand. We have Māori. They have this connection to the ocean. And it's it's a source of knowledge that not every place in the world has. And I
1: think that we have a great opportunity here to really harness that. So what you were saying kindly is that uh, traditional science and in some institutions haven't valued that sometimes.
2: I think so. I think from my own personal perspective, I would say that as humans, we're all innately scientists. Mm -hmm. I think we are born to be curious and
1: understand our world. Is that what you talk about when you talk about decolonising the approach to climate change, Kida?
0: Yeah, I think that's definitely one massive aspect of it. So perhaps for a bit of context, I guess, you know, I started out you know being very interested in climate change when I was about 13. So, you know, I was at school trying to learn about climate change, trying to learn about, you know, how it happens, learn about carbon and all of these, you know, very scientific things. And, you know, at the time that I was growing up and engaging with other rangatahi in that space, it was, you know, a very, very nerdy thing and not so much the mainstream thing that it is today. And I think through that journey, I've kind of experienced that climate change, when it is framed in this you know, really scientific way, I think it can be quite exclusive. Because then we get into this mindset of thinking, well, oh, well, I have to understand about carbon dioxide. I have to understand about greenhouse gases. I have to understand all of these things to be able to know what climate change is and how it's happening. But as I've had the immense privilege of working with uh, so many other Indigenous and Māori activists, you know, academics as well, and people who are really passionate about climate change, I've started to see that actually there are so many different ways of knowing, as Libby put it, there are so many different ways of looking at this issue and you know, it's not necessarily the scientific issue or thing that's just happening up in the air or happening in the oceans, but it's happening in our communities as well. And I think when we start to you know, recognise climate change not only as an environmental issue or not only as a you know, scientific issue but as a social issue, then I think there is a lot more space for our communities to really lead in terms of connecting with the knowledge they already have and recognising, oh, I actually do know what I'm talking about because I'm seeing the way that climate change might impact, say, you know, communities who are most impacted by climate change, like Indigenous and disabled communities around the world. And we're able to say, oh, okay, actually, I do know something. I do have a stake in the ground here. I can um, input into this corridor. Or, you know, if you're talking around climate justice, for example, so this idea of climate change as an intersecting sort of social issue, then there are so many communities who can say, oh, well, you know, maybe I don't know all of the details about carbon emissions, but I do know that there is a mine that they're proposing uh, down the road and our community is really not okay with that and I know that there are these other harmful impacts of that. So I think that it is really important to make sure that when we talk about climate change we don't perpetuate this misconception that it is something only for very specific qualified people but that yeah that that we connect with our own qualifications and that can be your own lived experience that can be growing up by the Moana that can be all sorts of different experiences that are really valuable and essential if we actually want to do something about climate change.
1: And we've actually seen with COVID-19 how important it is to have science messaging that speaks to everybody. So what are some of the changes that you see are impactful and needed, Libby? We can be talking about anything right from how we engage communities to reducing waste and emissions. What do you always put at the the top of your wish list?
2: Yeah, so I don't think there's any silver bullet. It is a global issue, but as Kira says, the solutions will be local. And I think that there are a lot of parallels actually with COVID. So just like COVID was a global pandemic or is a global pandemic, climate change is a global phenomenon. But what we do locally is not determined by what is happening globally. So we have a similar window of opportunity with climate change in New Zealand that we had with COVID. We are somewhat buffered from climate change impacts. So Kera was talking about people that she's corresponding with who have witnessed firsthand impacts of climate change in their own nations. We don't have a lot of cases in New Zealand where people have suffered at the hand of climate change, where their industries, their livelihoods, their well-being has been really compromised. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't heed the warnings of these people that have experienced it overseas. We're lucky in New Zealand not to have encountered that yet. So like COVID, where we watched what was going on overseas and we were able to mount a local response that was suited to us and our people and what we could do, I think we have that opportunity in New Zealand. Another parallel with COVID, I would say, is that um, we all jumped on board, right? So we went out and we got tested. And I see that as one of the greatest citizen science efforts that we've seen in New Zealand. And there's no reason why we can't do something similar in New Zealand. And what I think that might look like is for us each to generate that information by way of sharing our stories, like Kira has talked about, stories of what we've witnessed within our lifetimes or what our ancestors have told us have happened and around us and I think the power in that is not only that we'll be able to describe those impacts better in a way that is tangible to my neighbour to other people who live in my community or people who have visited that place that I'm talking about even if they don't know me firsthand it makes climate change more personal Mm. and tangible the other thing is that it and helps not so us... so overwhelming because we have to be able to do yeah, something, don't we, we? we're crippled at the moment. We need to be empowered as individuals. And we do have a lot of power in it, not only to describe the, the issues and problems and make it relatable, but also in the solutions. So we are a community who've been through a lot in the past and Māori have faced a lot of adversity, I'm sure, through times in their coastal environments. There have probably been times where there's been dieback of muscle beds in the past. And there are solutions probably that have been um, mounted before that have worked and could work again. So I think understanding what the problems are, sharing that, and sharing that knowledge will really help us build solutions and the correspondence we need between all New Zealanders but also across that science society, I guess, threshold where, like Kira has said, where maybe people don't feel entitled to be part of the solution
1: as yet. Mm. One solution that we see quite often is rahui. Mm. Uh, What is your perception of... How that is now managed and and we were at in terms of understanding that that does actually have a community scientist basis
0: mm, yeah, absolutely i think the I think the case of Rahui is really interesting, and I just want to be transparent that I don't have a huge amount of expertise in that space, but I think the comment that I could offer is that I think Rahui are a great example of the ways in which our communities already have existing practices to manage climate change and to address climate change and the um, myriad effects of climate change on our communities as well. And so I think rahoe are really important, but I do also think that, you know, that's just one example of the practices that we have. You know, there are many, many other examples, including, you know, if we are looking at addressing climate change you know, at the sort of structural level, I think it's really important to consider how, you know, our own tikanga can come into that space. So for me, you know, when I think about uh, climate change And the sort of actions that are required, I think I I agree partially with what Libby is saying in terms of there being this, you know, we do have this opportunity that, you know, with the right sort of government intervention and with the right uh, community intervention, we can make a really big difference in this sort of acute period. But I also do think it's important for us to consider that addressing climate change as this huge issue is going to require a real systems approach. And so for me, that looks like, you know, asking questions around what are the root causes of climate change? What are the systems that uphold climate change? And, you know, a really massive one of those is colonisation and the ongoing impacts of colonisation. And, you know, if we're talking about actually addressing climate change at the root rather than just sort of tinkering around the edges and maybe trying to make um, our existing lifestyle a tiny bit greener, which isn't actually going to get us there in terms of really addressing the problem, then I think we need to be asking questions around, you know, the systems that we have in place. You know, does our public transport system work for people? No. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> especially not for people with disabilities, especially not for Māori or uh, other communities who, you know, oftentimes uh, living in areas that aren't serviced well by those things. And I think that when we start to take that approach where we do look at the wider systems at play in our society, then I think our people have so much to offer in terms of being able to steward those discussions because, you know, our people have lived through huge changes over generations and we have shared that knowledge with our successive generations. We've adapted to huge changes before and actually I think Māori are in an incredible position to be really guiding some of the corridor around how we fundamentally change the systems that we live in, which is going to, ha- you know, it is going to have to happen in a really massive transformative way if we actually want to address climate change and that's where we can lean on some of our own cultural practices in addition to rahui. So, you know, how do we host kōrero amongst each other? How do we, you know, actually start to get out of this very individualised approach and this very individualised society structure that we have that has come through colonisation and how do we go back to, you know, whanau getting to know each other, getting to be in good relationship with other members of our communities, Getting to be in good relationship with the Moana, with the Finua, uh, how do we do that in a way where then we can actually come together with solutions that are really collective, uh, positive solutions, rather than feeling like everyone has to chip away? And I think that's part of the overwhelm as well, is because yeah. we have this idea. What can I
1: do as this, you know, individual? Yeah,
0: and it's huge because then you think, you know, oh well, I can't have plastic bags, and I have to, you know, catch public transport everywhere, even if it's not accessible to me, or there are all of these things, and. I I think, you know, I absolutely encourage people who have a lot of power, privilege, resources and who can make those changes, absolutely go for it. But the reality is that there are so many people, you know, within our society... Mm -hmm for whom those changes are just simply not accessible. And actually, if we want to make sure that they're able to play their part in addressing climate change, but critically also be protected from climate change because they're usually the ones who are going to be the most impacted, then we need to be having this sort of structural change. And I think that's where, you know, we do have so many cultural practices that can really uh, help to lead that in a way that is safe and collective and actually feels achievable rather than
1: this sort of overwhelming doom that we can't escape. So what sort of changes pop up in your mind, Libby, that would be meaningful?
2: Yeah, I think I think it's helpful in this discussion to really break down climate change into to two parts. So there's addressing the root cause of climate change and being proactive in that sense. And there's also the side of it where, unfortunately, climate change is happening. Mm. And regardless of what we do from here for the next few decades we're going to suffer the impacts of climate change. So I guess that's where I try to focus on how we can really mitigate the impact of these environmental and physical changes we know are happening and possibly these biodiversity impacts as well, how we can mitigate the impact of those on our well-being, whether that be the um, inspiration we draw from the moana, our well-being, livelihood, um, what are the things that we can do. And that's where I feel like having individual knowledge and that, that's power in those discussions and those solutions. So knowing that, you know, one fish stock is in decline, but, hey, there's a new one arriving in my rohi, that's power. You know, you're now empowered to do something to maintain the well-being of yourself and your community around you. So I guess, yeah, I'm, I'm biased in that that's where I focus. You know, it is a global issue. But these solutions and these actions that are local are the ones that are going to mean the most, I think, for our livelihoods and well-being going forward as a human population.
1: So is there anything that you can safely say that would be a meaningful change that New Zealanders can adopt right now? That's a really hard question. I, know. <laughs> um, yeah, I think
2: The first thing would be talking. You know let's share in our stories and what we know and thinks happening. And that's not only around those climate change impacts, but the other things that may be impacting a stock or a resource that we rely upon. So if we know, for instance, that um, the kelp is going to be impacted by localised warming in this region of New Zealand, what other things can we do to maintain that kelp population? It might be minimising sedimentation. And these solutions are always going to be very local. And in that way, I hope that communities and people will be empowered to take charge because that's how it needs to happen. We talked about Rahui, and it's fantastic and quite, I think, unique worldwide that we have this practice legislated. And what I see our government going toward, very slowly, <laughs> but going in the right direction, is toward these um, coastal management areas called Moana where the community, whether it be Indigenous Māori or a local community who has a vested interest in that area, come together and have these kōrero that are needed to really dictate how that one kilometre barrier around our landscape is going to be looked after. And I think that that's going to be really important for how we address these localised climate impacts.
1: And also thinking about how, say, kelp, people might think oceans and they think fish stock and all those things, but we actually need to think about the entire environment. Is that right?
2: That's it. I mean, so every breath we draw, we thank the land for the first and we thank the ocean for the second. So oxygen is really important. That comes from our ocean, and the ocean cannot provide us with that oxygen unless it's a living um, organism in a way, and uh, you know only when it has that ability to circulate in the way that it always has. So it helps deliver the right temperature, water to the right places, and um, that relies upon there being the right organisms living and thriving. So... It's a complex place, and I struggle to give um, these really silver bullet solutions because I think that we're only really at the cusp of understanding our oceans. The more you scratch the surface, the more you realise we don't know, but that's no excuse for not acting. So, there are solutions within our reach at the moment, and a lot of the time, you know, they're held by people who are not yet connected with the right people to get those conversations going in the right direction.
1: And our Pacific peoples know because of generational knowledge of of living on islands that are being directly impacted. Without speaking for Pacific peoples, when when you're in your environments that you are with the United Nations, what is the corridor from our Pacific peoples when we talk about the impact on oceans?
0: Yeah, I think that's really interesting and obviously... Yeah, I can only speak to my experience, you know, in those spaces as a wahine Maori, but I think that we draw a lot from our tukana across um Timuana Nui Nuyakiwa and certainly sea level rise is a massive issue, obviously. And particularly for many of those islands that are really low lying, uh, thinking around, you know, what does that mean for people who do have to move? And I think, as Libby mentioned at the very beginning, you know, we've been very buffered in New Zealand through a whole number of ways. Obviously, the ocean's been buffering a lot of our experiences of climate change on the land. But on top of that, in New Zealand, we are buffered in many other ways socially as well, including um, through our socioeconomic status, including through yeah our sort of, pol- I guess, political uh, capital and political opportunities in a way. And I think one of the corridors that I've found really important with a lot of our tōkana uh, from across the Moana is really thinking around what is our responsibility then also, because we do have a huge amount of privilege. And I think we need to recognise that in many of those nations, uh, New Zealand has also been a colonial power. New Zealand has also been an oppressor. uh, And we have benefited in so many ways from, you know, the labour, um, the mahi, the knowledge from, you know, many of our neighbours and relatives across the Pacific Ocean and I think it's really important that we also consider what that means in terms of our responsibility. As a country we've had a much larger impact in causing climate change in terms of the emissions that we're putting out so our contribution to causing climate change has been greater but on top of that we also have a lot of resources and a lot of capital that we can draw on Uh, to address climate change. And so what I'd really like to see is, you know, our government really recognising the role that New Zealand has played. And particularly, you know, I just, I have to bring it up, but this corridor around climate refugees. So recognising that for a lot of people, as Libby said, you know, there are still options for us to take action to really dampen the impacts of climate change in the future. But the reality is that there are some impacts that are already locked in because we have not taken action fast enough and because... On the whole, a lot of countries like New Zealand have continued to think that it's okay to just make these tiny little changes around the edges rather than actually playing our part. And so I think a huge thing is even the rhetoric that we have in New Zealand around the Pacific, I find is often extremely racist, often does not recognise the ways in which New Zealand has benefited from our neighbours. And I think fundamentally one thing that we really need to do is also to address you know the ways in which we approach you know people who are having to leave their homes because of climate change and that you know that that's happening and that's starting to happen and will continue to happen and we need to make sure that we you know can monarchy them uh, that we are actually providing a space where you know we're we're not you know sort of assuming that people are coming to New Zealand in this negative way but recognizing that that is a huge tragedy that we've also been complicit in in the loss of their whenua and the loss of their wahitapu and spaces that are important to them and that that as people and as a nation that's been complicit in that, we actually have to take a really big responsibility. But also on top of that, making sure that the space that they come into is welcoming. And so I think we have a lot of foundational work to do uh, within our society to make this a country that is, you know, welcoming of our Tuakana from the Pacific who are having to come here, but also on the note of you know mitigating the effects already is that we fundamentally just have to play our part. And we haven't been doing that. And yeah. I don't even think we're slightly on track to doing that. Do we take
1: responsibility that? for it as far as you can see, Libby, in terms of, say, in, in the Pacific, how New Zealand creates more mm. emission and, and we think of ourselves as good guys so often, mm. it's so easy to. Mm. Uh, but actually, people in the Pacific are impacted by our actions as well.
2: In correspondence with colleagues of mine in in the Pacific, Indigenous peoples, you know, climate change is so front of mind. You know, it's the first thing we talk about when you meet someone, it's the first thing you talk about. I don't have those same interactions in New Zealand. As, as a society, we are not as engaged with the issue as we need to be if we really want to have a role in doing right by the wrongs we've done, basically. And if we want to be that big brother and to have a hand in looking after our neighbours. And I think that, you know, the current government we have, the intention is there, but we just need to act. And we also need to listen, right? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. like you've described, Kira, these people are the witnesses of climate change impacts. They know what happens. And impacts. Yeah, mm. exactly. And, you know, we don't have that, knowledge as front of mind in New Zealand. So that's a resource for us. You know, we're lucky to have access to those stories, to that information. I was going to highlight some of the good that has actually come out of a terrible pandemic that we have just suffered. So from a scientist's point of view, it's been amazing. The scientists and government that have been leading through this last year have really done a service for science and its place within society. We've learnt all about where data comes from and people have had a hand in generating that data. We've learnt about mathematical modelling and how we use predictions in science and also the uncertainty that is around a lot of the science that is done. Not only that, we've had a government that's been really nimble and actually based decisions and policy on evidence. I think there's an opportunity now for climate change to follow on from that. So using that um, evidence based decision making and also, you know, the government continuing to be nimble around an issue where we really need to be. We need to follow on with this momentum and harness what we've done around COVID for the greater good of, I guess, humanity and New Zealanders. You know, this is this is the next big issue. And we're now quite well equipped, I think, or better than before at least, to start addressing it properly. And see what that
1: looks like. But to go back to your uh, point earlier, evidence comes in different forms and there are different ways of knowing and it's important that we engage everyone in their evidence. Kira, when you hear that, what what pops up front of mind for you? Yeah, I think it's really interesting
0: because, you know, when we think about COVID-19 and climate change, I think the reality is that the same people are always hit first and worst. So our Māori, our Pacific and particularly our disabled communities have been disproportionately impacted by COVID-19 and I think the same thing is happening within climate change. It's great that our government, you know, is wanting to do something, but I think fundamentally where it needs to start is that point Libby made about listening, is that we need to recognise that the communities who are closest to the problems are the closest to the solutions. And so on both counts of COVID-19 and on climate change, you know, those are the communities who are disproportionately impacted. Uh, Māori, Pacific people, disabled people, our queer communities as well, and people who don't have so much socioeconomic So I think we need to recognise that these issues are not, you know, they don't exist in a vacuum. They do exist within the social context of our society, which is unfortunately very unequal. And if we want to address that, then we really need to focus on enabling our communities to actually be upfront with the solutions and to do that within you know the context of a high trust relationship. So it's not this sort of paternalistic thing of you need to do this or this is how you need to do it or we'll fund you to do this thing, but only if you tick all of these requirements which are set up for you know an academic space or a not for profit, you know, NGO space that's very accustomed to, you know, those kinds of projects, frameworks, right? Yeah, yeah, those frameworks. Yeah, so mm-hmm.
1: engaging with community. As a forethought, not as an afterthought, mm-hmm. and having those conversations that count. Mm. Ngā Tēnā korua. You've been listening to Conversations That Count. Ngā Brought to you by Massey University and the Spin Off Podcast Network hosted by me, Stacey Morrison, recorded by Jane Yee, edited and mixed by Jonathan Pearce, and produced by Matthew McCauley, with music by Grayson Gilmore.
2: The Spin-Off Podcast Network.